Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Uh, good morning. Good to talk again. Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. As usual, lots to talk about. Um, I want to go through uh, some Irish economic data that's been published in the last few days just to give a picture of where the Irish economy is at this point. But before I do that, um, I notice you posted a piece on our Substack account on growth and the importance of growth and the drivers of growth. Um, and growth actually is becoming an interesting topical theoretical discussion at the moment. Um, perhaps it has been driven by the death of Solo there a few weeks ago, the famous US economist who did a lot of work on growth theory. But I noticed in the last couple of days, President Milai of Argentina giving an interview about growth theory to an audience. Um, and so there's, and, and indeed in the Financial Times this morning, there's a piece by an interview with Stephanie Kelton, who is a US economist who would be a modern monetary theorist. And she's talking about the importance of supply side measures to actually drive economic activity. And the key basis of her um, interview is that she's saying that the Federal Reserve should take no credit for bringing inflation under control, that hiking interest rates to depress economic demand is not the way to go. She believes that you need to address the supply side in a sense. And she's saying that the White House now ought to focus on building up the US economy's ability to create more goods and services by redoubling its efforts to stimulate investment in fighting climate change building more housing and making childcare affordable. And um, in the last podcast, we mentioned the Simon Wren Lewis piece where he was arguing 
about the need for governments now to build up national debt, to invest in climate change measures, and that the cost of doing that now would be far lower than the ultimate cost of dealing with climate change if we do nothing about it. So there is a very interesting debate going on, obviously all around the world at the moment, about the correct way to run economies, about the correct stance of fiscal policy. Um, When we hear somebody like Stephanie Kelton talking about supply side measures, nothing like what Reagan and Thatcher would have spoken about years past, but it is an interesting debate and argument about economic growth. And the piece you've written for our Substack account um, is highlighting once again an issue that we have discussed many times, and that is about the lack of understanding of actually what drives economic growth. Yeah, Jim, I mean, Stephanie Kelton should uh, join the rest of the economics profession, I think, and learn a little humility. Because one thing, one way in which the economics profession, I think, has progressed really, I guess, since the financial crisis, is to become a wee bit more humble about its claims, about its beliefs, and what we think we know and what we acknowledge humbly that we don't know. And economic growth is perhaps the area or the topic that I think we need to be most humble about. And that you mentioned um, Solo there, who won the Nobel Prize for his growth theories, and another Nobel Prize winning economist who also died recently, Robert Lucas, he once famously said that once he started about thinking about economic growth, he rarely thought about anything else. And Lucas is actually more famous for his work on business cycles than he is on economic growth. And it's about those two areas that macroeconomists have become very humble, uh, with the exception perhaps of the modern monetary theorists like Stephanie Kelton. The one thing I'd say about Kelton's criticisms of the Biden White House is that the thing that she is criticising them for are the things that they are doing. And the US economy is growing, is developing its supply side in the most extraordinary way. The investment in all sorts of different things that are going on, and particularly in environmental things, but also in um, semiconductors, bringing uh, basically semiconductor capacity back to the United States. The piece I wrote about growth uh, started with a quote from The Economist from a few years back, which is bang on the money. Economists have precious few hard facts about growth. They know that sustained growth in GDP only started in the 18th century, in the 1770s to be precise. They know that countries can become rich only by growing steadily over long periods. They know that in some fundamental way, growth is about using new technologies to become more productive and to uncover new ideas. Beyond that, almost everything is contested. And it's that last point that is most important. Growth is very recent. Most people, politicians in particular, but but an awful lot of people think growth is something that's been around for a very long time. It hasn't. It's only been since the Industrial Revolution. From uh, zero AD or zero common era, depending on how you like to date these things, so just over 2,000 years ago, um, to the Industrial Revolution, per capita GDP growth in the world was nil. People find that hard to believe, but to the extent that we have data, that's what it shows. We lived in a Malthusian world. When there was some economic growth, population just overtook it. So that on a per capita basis, on average, the typical world citizen was not better off between the time when Christ walked the earth and the Industrial Revolution started, give or take. So first of all, growth is much more recent than we think. 
And so therefore what happens is that people take it for granted and they shouldn't. It's very, very easy to destroy the conditions necessary for economic growth, very, very hard to rebuild or build them in the first place. And I put a chart that's the famous hockey stick chart of global growth over the last 2,000 years. The, the thing about economic growth is, is that it facilitates everything. It facilitates our health, our longevity, our, obviously our prosperity. And the fact that there are now 8 billion plus people living on the planet is all facilitated by economic growth. Yes, there's still too much poverty, too much, too much inequality. There are economic problems. But economic problems are cured by growth. The degrowthers of this world will just cause an, um, a different kind of crisis if, if they think that not growing the economy will save the world's environment. So I go on and on about this. And the point that I'm making is that there was a fascinating article by John Byrne Murdoch, who's a great data journalist in the FT last week, that explored a lot of these themes, the Industrial Revolution, the recency of economic growth, the fact that we take it for granted, and asked why many countries have become so pessimistic about growth. The Economist has done a similar series of pieces in, in recent times, asking why politicians in the West, in some countries in the West, seem to become uninterested in economic growth. And it's a question that's puzzled me for quite some time, particularly looking at you and I do at, at Ireland, um, which is a, a study in the opposite, a country that has grown so rapidly on and off, mostly on, since what? The early 90s, the, the, the famous Celtic tiger. And economic growth... Um, matters in so many different ways as people in Ireland uh, are realising and the absence of economic growth in the UK people are realising it from a different perspective in, in Britain and I use the example of, of, of really the regions in Britain as to what happens when economic growth disappears and why it disappears. I think that as John Byrne Murdoch explores there are lots of cultural reasons why growth disappears one of the mysteries to me is why you don't have a, a minister, a cabinet minister in countries who, whose remit is economic growth. You could argue the finance minister is, is, has that job, but really the finance minister's job is all about making things add up, doing a fiscal arithmetic rather than fiscal strategy. So there are lots of different aspects to this, but it, the point of my piece is a warning to Ireland, is that don't go the way of Wales and Scotland. And what they have done with respect to their political and economic priorities is push economic growth down the list of priorities to the point where you can hardly see it. It so, becomes so unimportant to politicians. Things like the national question in Scotland. Sound familiar to the Irish, Jim, or at least to Sinn Féin, the, the next incoming government, perhaps? Uh, in Wales, the priority is uh, are weird. They, first of all, understandably, they promote the Welsh language. It's a different form of nationalism, but it's still nationalism of a kind. Nothing wrong with promoting the Welsh language, um, but to the exclusion of so many other things and the consumption of so many resources, they throw money at the language in, in quite the most extraordinary way. They're committed to never building new roads because they are committed environmentalists. You can applaud that in one respect, but if you don't build stuff, you won't have economic growth. They uh, have devoted considerable political and financial capital to imposing a 20 mile an hour speed limit on most Welsh roads. An extraordinary thing. So once you start developing these priorities that either don't have economic growth in the title or push economic growth off the page of priorities, the list of priorities, guess what? Growth disappears. 
and Wales and Scotland don't grow anymore. They are economically moribund. That's not because somebody has decided to do completely insane, stupid, say, left-wing things, but they have stopped thinking about economic growth and economic growth. When you stop nurturing it, when you stop watering it, when you stop feeding it, disappears when you have the wrong list of priorities. And economic growth pays for stuff. And Scotland and Wales used to have fabulous education systems. Guess what? The revenues just haven't been there in recent years for that to continue. And they have been slipping down the famous PISA rankings. You think the NHS is bad in the UK as a whole? It's dreadful in Wales, much worse than it is in England. So economic growth and education, health and other outcomes are inextricably linked. And the point of my piece is that even um, if you are well-intentioned when it comes to things like pursuing Irish reunification and Irish housing policy and Irish health policy, just remember how it's all going to be paid for. And if you don't nurture economic growth, and indeed if you pursue policies that hinder economic growth, you're going to have a problem. Sorry, Jim, that was a bit more long-winded than I suspect you wanted me to be, but that was the point of my piece, and, I, and I, I'm glad that you gave me the opportunity to advertise it. Back to you, mate. I, I know, Chris, I, I think the whole growth argument and how policymakers should um, support growth is a really important one because uh, later in the podcast, I'll be taking you through some recent Irish economic data releases, and basically they are all suggesting a slowdown in economic activity. And uh, you mentioned having a Minister for Economic Development or some such title. Uh, I think that would represent a very, very positive initiative. Somebody with that would, would have responsibility for taking a long-term strategic view of where an economy should and needs to go. Whereas the Minister for Finance, um, it's obviously about balancing the books. And I guess one of the <clears throat> fears I would have now is that over the next couple of years, as Irish growth eases off, um, as the bounties in the public finances become uh, less impressive, that there will be a return to fiscal austerity and that the Minister of Finance will drive an agenda of basically trying to balance the books at all costs. I think we need a longer term strategic view here. You know, regardless of the fiscal situation, we do need to be investing in stuff that actually improves the long term growth potential of the economy and that guarantees you get growth longer term rather than just um, short term spurts. So I'm talking about investment in infrastructure. I'm talking about investment in IT capability. I'm talking about investment in education, investment in public services, investment in public transport um, and, and stuff like that. So I, I think it is really, really important that any government remains focused on what needs to be done in terms of spending and investment to ensure you get long term growth in an economy. One of the um, issues, I guess, I've been thinking about a lot recently in the context of the United States. Uh, as we've discussed many times, the US economy has certainly surprised on the upside over the last 12 months. And um, it is one of the strongest growing economies in the world at the moment, despite what the Federal Reserve has done on the interest rate front. Um, and yet I saw opinion poll ratings last week showing the position of the incumbent president 10 months out from the election and actually Joe Biden's approval 
rating is one of the lowest we've seen in generations, if not the lowest. He's more unpopular than people like Trump and Obama were and Clinton were at this stage of the cycle. So it, it begs the question, you know, why is this economic growth in the United States um, not actually benefiting the president? And one possibility, I guess, is that if you have an economy where GDP is growing, but where population is growing more strongly, that the GDP per capita is declining. So despite the growth, people on average are not feeling as well off as they were in the past. That's one possible argument. And you could look at the situation in Japan. I mean, Japan for 30 years has basically stagnated in terms of economic growth, but yet um, it still comes across as a pretty wealthy, vibrant economy with um, a number of very, very strong global companies. And there is a sense of well-being in Japan that you don't get in many other countries. Is the reason for that the fact that the Japanese population is actually declining? So a steady cake is being divided up amongst fewer people. Yeah, well, one of the things that you one could immediately say about Japan is that the headline growth numbers belie much greater prosperity than you would otherwise think. It looks stagnant at the GDP level, but because of that falling population, GDP per head is actually rising quite nicely. So you need to be, one needs to be careful about how you actually describe the Japanese situation. Their, their situation of, of falling population is a first example and perhaps a most extreme example of what's going to happen to all of us um, sooner or later. Each country faces similar Japanese demography going forward. And that represents a challenge from all sorts of perspectives, politically, socially, and from an economic growth perspective. Because when you have a falling population, as many countries um, either have or are going to have quite quickly. Um, China's getting there. Uh, Italy's already there. Um, Ireland, not so much. It's going to be a while before that happens. Uh, but um, it, it, does, it does set up a different dynamic and way of framing the whole economic growth discussion. But you're right that Japan is, is certainly very interesting in this regard, Jim. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So I know this is something we will come back to in future podcasts, the whole growth story. Um, I just want to quickly take you through some of the recent economic data releases in Ireland, which I think explain a lot about what's going on in the economy at the moment. Uh, we got, and I, I wrote a few pieces for our Substack account looking at some of these stats earlier in the week, but just to summarize, 
Um, manufacturing output in the first 11 months of the year was down by 12.2% on the same period in 22. The modern sector, which is dominated by multinationals, down 14.5%, whereas output from the traditional sector up 5%. But wait for this, in the three months, September to November, the overall output index was down 31.3% on a year earlier, with the modern sector down 33.2%, the traditional sector up 3.1%. And that is really reflecting the sharp fall we've seen in the output of the chemical and pharmaceutical sector. That's something we've spoken about in the context of exports and in the context of corporation tax receipts in recent months. But this is the reason, another explanation for the reason why GDP in Ireland um, contracted in 2023 and could well contract again in 2024, depending on what happens in the chemical pharma sector. Um, we got unemployment data for December, 136,300 people unemployed. The unemployment rate jumped from 48 to 4.9%. It was 4.3% a year ago. Uh, for males, there's an unemployment rate of 5.1%. Females, 4.6%. But one worrying aspect, and this is particularly worrying if you're a politician, youth unemployment, which is unemployment for those aged between 15 and 24, has jumped from 10% a year ago to 13.4% at the moment. So the labour market is certainly softening a little bit. Um, and, and that is despite the fact that the, at the end of September with record levels of employment. I'm not saying this is something that we should get unduly worried about. It's not a crisis situation, but there is this gradual upward shift in unemployment. And indeed, I saw yesterday that the Eurozone unemployment rate actually declined in November from 65 to 6.4%, which is the lowest level of unemployment since the Euro area was created back in 1999. And it just shows something we've spoken about many times and we've written about the despite the interest rate increases, despite slower growth, actually labour markets everywhere you know, remain pretty tight. But that's not taking the point I'm making there about some slippage happening on the Irish side. And I guess many Irish businesses might welcome this because um, recruitment and retention in a very tight labour market has been challenging. It'll remain challenging, but, you know, it might just get that little bit easier. We also got retail sales data for November published earlier this week and retail sales is spending consumer spending on physical goods okay it excludes services we get the service um, expenditure data um, in a much more untimely way but on the retail sales of goods side um, in November the volume of sales was 0.8% higher than a year earlier. And if you exclude buying car sales, and car sales were up 15.6% last year, if you exclude car sales from retail sales, there was an actual decline of 0.9%. So, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing a slowdown in consumer spending, and we are seeing a more challenging environment for the retail sector. And one thing that will need to be watched very carefully over the coming months will be 
um, the performance of the retail and hospitality sectors, particularly because both sectors are facing a pretty well, they are in a pretty challenging environment for a variety of reasons, not least on the 1st of May, the 1.8 billion in warehoused revenue debt, uh, which is a legacy of COVID um, is due to start to be repaid. And that could cause significant problems for many companies. And the point I guess I am making is that, you know, definitely we are seeing a slowdown in retail spending. The final... Um, Jim, can report, I come across you there? Just before you, you get indeed. on to your final point, please return to it. But before I forget, I'd like to make two points. One serious, one slightly tongue-in-cheek about the two things that you've mentioned there. Um, the youth unemployment thing, I think, is very worrying and needs to, needs to be explored further by us and policymakers. But the more general remark there, and I'm not suggesting for a second that all of that youth unemployment is unskilled labour, but we have lots of debates on this podcast and throughout economic media generally about the impact of artificial intelligence on jobs. And at the most extreme, there is a view that there is going to be a jobs apocalypse as a result of artificial intelligence taking everyone's job, that it will be able to do just about everything that any human being can do at the moment. I don't think so. I think that's most unlikely. But I accept that there is a debate about how far up the skill chain, if you like, artificial intelligence is going to reach and how far up the skilled job chain is going to damage employment prospects. But one thing I think that everybody agrees is that sooner or later, and it is actually going to be sooner, because it's been happening as a result of technological change, not just artificial intelligence, for decades, is that the job prospects of the unskilled, the school leaver with no qualifications whatsoever, are just getting worse and worse and worse because of the ability of technology to do the kind of things that unskilled people in the past used to be able to do. I'm using the word unskilled in the narrow technical economic sense. I don't wish it to be pejorative, but it is a fact that if you do not have some form of employable skill, you are in increasing trouble in today's job market. And with the advent of AI, that is only going to get worse. And I wonder whether that's already explaining some of the rise in youth unemployment. The second thing that I wanted to say, more tongue-in-cheek, is that do you realise, Jim, with your comments now, very well made that they are, about the risks from the uh, backlog in tax payments, if you like, the deferred tax payments that a lot of SMEs could well be facing this year, means for the first time in your career, you've been talking about something, an economic phenomenon, an economic problem, in exactly the same terms as one of your favourite Irish Times journalists. Una Mullally? Yep, you got it. I just thought it, yes. I just thought it was worth my... I think it's probably the first time in your career that you've been of one mind with that particular journalist. <laughs> Would that be right? <laughs> uh, I, suspect, I suspect you're correct. Um, it's funny, she obviously got her hands on the same set of data that I did... Oh, no, she listened, she listened to our podcast, Jim. <laughs> I would doubt it, Chris. I would doubt it. But uh, no, the, the, the debt warehouse... I'll move quickly off of that, Chris. My God. Uh, the, debt the debt warehousing piece is interesting. You know, it's heavily concentrated in construction companies, small construction companies in the retail sector and in the hospitality sector. So it's dominated by SMEs, obviously. And um, it is estimated that 10% of companies have about 90% of that liability. So it's, it's a big, big issue. 
and uh, it, it, it does come in an environment where SMEs are already experiencing lots of headwinds. Uh, the SME environment, listen, is never easy. And every time I talk about the SMEs, I talk about just how challenging the environment is. And that is a fact, you know, regardless of how strong an economy is, the SME sector always faces unique set of circumstances and challenges. Uh, but that's the nature of SME owner managers. They get on with it. Um, they are prepared over long periods of time to accept very low rates of return for the effort and the investment they put in. Uh, but that's the nature of it. And I think it's what makes the SME sector such a vibrant and important part of the economy. Uh, but it is one that we spoke about in the last podcast that does need more attention, that does need more support. If, I'm, Chris, if I might just finally just offer one comment, and this is not directed at you at all, it's about really the way in which um, tax officials in particular and finance and economics people in, in general just over-jargonise uh, their profession. And we keep talking in this context about a debt warehouse. Why don't they call it deferred taxation? Then everybody would understand what it is. True, true that, Ab absolutely. Mo mo moving yeah. swiftly on. Yeah. Um, Board BIA published its end-year results yesterday. Board BIA is the state agency with responsibility for promoting uh, the Irish food sector, particularly on the export side. So last year, we exported 16.3 billion in food and drink exports. This is the second year in a row that that export total has exceeded 16 billion. That's the positive side of the story. But there was a decline of 4% in exports last year. I, I have to hasten to add that that comes on top of phenomenal growth of 22.22% the previous year. So it's it's a modest contraction, but nevertheless, um, it does reflect, I think, many business realities out there. You know, input costs um, have increased significantly. There's shifting global demand for commodities. Primary producers are being seriously impacted, well, have been seriously impacted in 2023 by severe weather conditions. And of course, inflation, which is a global phenomenon, is putting downward pressure on the demand for food and drink. So the net result is a 4% decline in exports from what is our most important indigenous sector. And for those who might be interested in the breakdown of the 16.3 billion, the dairy sector accounted for 6.3 billion or 38.7%, meat and livestock, 4.2 billion, or 25.8% of the total, and beef accounts for 2.7 billion of that. And I mentioned the beef piece because there is quite a lot of discussion, debate, and controversy about the um, climate credentials of beef production, but 2.7 billion export market, that's what it is. Uh, prepared consumer foods, 3.1 billion, 19% of the total, and then drink, uh, which is heavily dominated, I think, by stuff like Bailey's and Irish whiskey, uh, 1.8 billion, 11% of the total, and then seafood, horticulture, make up significantly smaller components. Uh, but anyway, um, enough statistics there. I just felt it might be nice to give people a flavour 
for what we're doing as a country on the food and drink side. Chris, every opportunity I get, uh, you've probably noticed, I try and dig at, have a dig at you about what's happening in the UK. And I very conveniently at the end of the last podcast threw in the piece about the Halifax house price index in the UK showing uh, the first growth in UK house prices in a while. Um, and when house prices are growing, you know, that is indicative of a certain level of um, economic activity and demand in an economy, I would have thought. Yes, and I think probably you're both right and wrong there, Jim. You're right to point out that I've got house prices completely wrong last year. I thought the rises in interest rates that we saw in Britain, in Europe and in Ireland would produce much more weakness in the housing market than we've seen. We've seen hardly any weakness, actually. Uh, it's been flat. So that, you might describe that as weak. But the big falls in house prices that I thought were quite likely just haven't happened. So if you ask me, and I suspect many economists these days, to write down a model of what actually determines house prices, uh, I think we'd, we'd struggle um, because interest rates no longer seem to affect house prices very much at all. And interest rates would be one of the first things that most economists would write down. And it's beginning to look like the whole supply-demand balance thing is... is uh, which is what you have emphasised in recent past, is the, the most important factors. But again, that just asks the, the demand question, why isn't demand for housing affected by interest rates in the way that it was in the past? So who knows what the heck is going on? And I, yeah, I, Chris, if, if I may just interject there and say that I've been speaking to a lot of auctioneers recently, and I've also been observing um, for personal reasons uh, what's happening in the housing market. And um, there's, there's a lot of people actually walking in and competing for houses with significant wild cash in their pockets. And that's part of the 151.6 billion in household savings we saw at the end of October in this country. So the, the, the market is not, is not just simply a market that's driven by mortgage interest rates for many buyers of well for a segment of buyers which is large enough to create serious competition in the market um, mortgage rates don't really matter so I, it goes back to your point that um, it is an incredibly complex area to try and understand what actually drives house prices and and of course it does change as well over time from period to period. There are always these unique set of circumstances that distort the market uh, but it's a complicated one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but your second point about a strong housing market and the economy as a whole, uh, that seems to be similar in the case of the UK, at least, is that the housing market um, has been more resilient in the sense that house prices haven't fallen. Um, they've been bouncing along a, a flat trend, if you like. And coincidentally or not, that's been the story of the economy. The economy has been bouncing along the flat line as well, up 0.1, down 0.1 those sorts of numbers for, for as many quarters as we can remember now. So maybe that isn't a coincidence. Maybe it is. I don't know. But certainly the house, housing market and the economy are pretty uh, well correlated these days in the UK. Chris, final question. When is the ECB going to cut rates? Later rather than sooner. Right. You, you, are, lo you are looking at comments from a member of the ECB Governing Council that's right. Somebody was speaking yesterday, I've forgotten his name, uh, who, and he made the, the, the very boilerplate standard right, right off the usual 
piece of paper that I think every ECB policy speech since the days of Dim Vim Doisenberg, I don't know if you remember him. I um, certainly do. Which died is in that sw- I, died in a swimming pool in sadly, Spain. Sadly, yes, yes, very tragic. Um, the uh, the speech goes as follows: the economy, sadly, is very, very weak. But also, equally sadly, price pressures are too strong. So we're either going to raise interest rates or not cut them for as far as the eye can see. And that really has been the story of the ECB, give or take, ever since the euro was created. I exaggerate slightly, but that is their bias. That's their standard single transferable policy that they apply in most circumstances. I think it's the wrong one now. I think they should be emphasising the first part of that speech, which is euro area economic weakness and not be worried at all about the inflation side of things, which I think will uh, continue to head in the right direction. It will be a two-step forward, one-step backward process. These things always are. But I'm much encouraged on the inflation background by the fact that oil prices have been weakening again lately, and the all-important natural gas price in Europe is threatening to go below 30, 30 euros again for the first time in a while, which is also going to be great news for Uh, energy consumers. So um, I think they should be cutting rates, Jim, but it doesn't look to me as if they're going to any time soon. Okay. Listen, Chris, uh, great talk again. Uh, I look forward to reconvening next week. So uh, do have a good weekend and safe travels. Speak soon, Jim. Take it easy. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store, Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.